0: Brian O'Connell first came across my radar when he was writing for the website Thought Catalog. This was just about 10 years ago, but in terms of the internet, it was still so new and it really felt like he was pushing the boundaries of what you could or could not write about online. He talked about loneliness and sex or lack of sex, his body, and just the stress of figuring out who you are in the world. It's that intimacy in his writing that I now see captivating people in his new Netflix show called Special. He's bearing it all, and quite literally. He'll hear us talk about a memorable scene with a sex worker, and why he thinks that sex work is something that we shouldn't be afraid to engage in, or at the very least just talk about. Ryan also has cerebral palsy, and didn't come out of what he calls the disability closet until he was 28. So today we're talking about all of this and more from luminary media i'm jeffrey masters and this is lgbtq and a so the series and your book both begin with a car crash which actually happened to you and after that everyone assumed that you had a limp and other things as a result of the car crash and not your cerebral palsy Mm -hmm. and you didn't correct them No siree, I took it and I ran with it. (laughs) (laughs) So why was that easier for people to process and relate to?
1: Um, To me, there's a lot of ignorance around what cerebral palsy is, and honestly, it's not entirely their fault because cerebral palsy truly looks different on everybody. You can dress it up, you can dress it down, Um, so I think that whenever I had to explain to someone that I had cerebral palsy, it always kind of was met with confusion and I hated it. So then with an accident, you're just like, oh, I got hit by a car. And people are like, oh my God, that's so sad. It could have happened to me. And I think that just made me feel like much, much more digestible to like everyone else.
0: I guess I just wonder like, what does that say about us that we find it easier to like show compassion with a car crash and not, like, something medical-based. It's not great. (laughs) Spoiler (laughs) alert.
1: I mean, no, I don't think it's, like, I don't think anyone's, like, being, like, cerebral palsy, ew, gross, sick. It's just sort of, like, there just is no conversation about disabilities. So it's, like, people just don't know. I don't think it's, like, I don't think that they are grossed out by it. I just think that it's foreign for them. And I think an accident is, like, oh,
0: everyone has known someone who's gotten into some kind of accident. So... And, like, people in your life who didn't even know that you had cerebral palsy, those are people that, like, don't know that they know someone with a disability, and so they're only getting messaging from, like, the media, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's just—I mean, disability looks looks different truly on everybody. So it's like there's no, there's no, like, oh, clearly he has this or clearly he has that. Do you know what I mean? It's just people don't know. And honestly, like, if they're polite about it, they don't fucking ask, <laughs> although some people do. How often does that happen? Um— it happens a little, a little bit. I mean, it happens a lot. I mean,
0: like, a little or a lot. <laughs>
1: I mean, I would say it happens a medium amount. I get some kind of form of an offensive question or an offensive comment, like, I would say, like, once every two weeks or so. Like, like you know, I'll get into an Uber and someone will be like, what's wrong with you? Why are you walking like that? Are you okay? And, you know, I don't love that because then I feel like the onus is on me to, like, educate them and explain to them that I have super palsy. It's like, I don't want to get into it. I just, like, want to go to, like, fucking Verve Coffee and drink my coffee and go home. Right. You know what I mean? Yes. Like, yeah. So, <laughs> but then I also feel like I should educate them because they don't know. And, you know, I could maybe make, you know, a change in their life or whatever. So... I go back and forth, I don't know, and then sometimes I just want to be like, fuck you, how dare you ask me anything that's so personal. It's so weird when you're disabled because I feel like mm, the only comparison I can think of is like when a woman's pregnant, people suddenly feel like they have the right to touch their body and comment on their body, and I feel like as a disabled person, like your body is just like, it's just free, free game for anyone. Like they just are like, okay, it's just interesting to me. People feel really entitled to like make observations and comments in a way that I just
0: don't understand. Also, like, with disabilities, like, they can come from car accidents or other accidents, and they can come from things that are medical. Yeah. You have an interesting perspective that you have both.
1: Yeah. I mean, I definitely thought when I first got out of car, I was like, oh, my God, wait. I thought I was, like, pretty much in the clear. <laughs> I thought, <laughs> thought, like, I could only have cerebral policy, and then, like, life would just guarantee me this past, and I'd be, like, living, laughing, and loving, and that's it. And then, obviously, that's not true. So acquiring a second disability on top of the one I already had was just a—it uh, a—it was a, it was a plot twist. And yet, in your book, you describe it as a blessing in disguise. It was for the moment. So like, so when I went to New York and everyone assumed my limp was from an accident, I thought, you know, when I became an accident victim, I thought I just created this amazing life hack because, you know, Ryan, the accident victim, deserved like 10,000 dicks in his ass. And then like, but Ryan, the cerebral palsy sufferer, like deserved no dicks whatsoever. I just felt like I could finally go after the things that everybody else was entitled to. So I did that for a couple of years and it felt good. And then, you know, it catches, it all catches up with you. You know what I mean? Like, you can't lie about who you are without consequences. When you're not being authentic, like, it's going to create, like, psychic damage. And I think I was realizing that in my late 20s that, like, this lie was no longer serving me. And, in fact, it was it was hurting me.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that's fascinating, too, Now, this accident gave you the confidence to start dating and having sex more.
1: Yeah. I mean, I didn't have that much sex, let me tell you. More than ever before. I didn't have anal sex for 10 years, which is my hugest regret. It really is. I'm not kidding you. Because, I, I mean, I would, like, have occasional boyfriends, and we'd date for a couple months, and then— you know, I'd have intimacy issues and push them away, et cetera, et cetera. But, yeah, I, like, yeah, I don't know. I Yeah, more than before. You're right. Yes. I had a little bit of sex rather than no sex.
0: Yes. Well, and with your TV show, it's the first time I've seen a disabled character on TV that is being sexualized. Yeah. And that's huge. Yeah. Okay, so the story's based on your life mm. and— Yet, the Ryan TV version, he loses his virginity to a sex worker. That yeah. did not happen to you. That didn't happen to me. Why I was, did you want to tell that story?
1: I think sex work is super important. I've used sex workers. You know, I have a boyfriend, but I still use sex workers. I think that they do an incredible service. And I think that there's still a stigma attached to the work that they do. And I think that's really fucked up. So um, it was kind of my way of almost killing two birds with one stone. I kind of wanted to show the humanity in sex work. And then I also wanted to show... Ryan, you know, have sexual agency and have wants and desires, because I think as disabled people, our private parts are cut off by society, and I feel like people don't think of us as sexual beings, and I think that's incredibly damaging. So that sex scene was really important to me. Also, furthermore, I mean, I've talked about this before in, like, press stuff, but um, I just really don't understand why there's not more gay sex in the media. I don't know like why we're not seeing gay men have sex, or if we do, it's like in this really like porny, queerest folk way. Um, I really don't understand like why we haven't had the girls' treatment yet. You know what I mean? Like why ha- we haven't seen sex as being awkward, funny, humiliating, affirming, all within the span of like five minutes because that's really what sex is, like or it can be, you know, so, um, I'm really interested in exploring gay sex in a real, like, authentic way.
0: And with sex workers, like, that's not an uncommon experience for people with disabilities.
1: Yeah, or, like, gay men. A lot of my gay friends use sex workers. It's, like, no big deal. I mean, I don't know. Like, where I live in, like, my group, it's, like, whatever. You hire, like, a masseur and he jerks you off and
0: good luck. Like, it's, like, who cares? I think that we've not yet, like, reached that place in society where that is, like, normalized, though.
1: Yeah, and that's frustrating. I feel like I'm always just, like... Literally waiting with my, like, my foot tapping impatiently, being, like, to society, like, can you be here now? Like, you're, like, 15 minutes late. Like, literally, like, get here now. I feel like it's, like, always playing catch-up. The things I'm talking about, to me, are not revolutionary. They're not groundbreaking. Like, they're just—it's how people live their lives. And I feel like the fact that there's any stigma attached to it whatsoever is embarrassing. And, like, it needs to course-correct now.
0: And with society needing to catch up to you, like, we're talking about, like, both parts of your identity. Yeah. Like, being gay and having disability. Yeah, totally. Like, people with disabilities. No. No, we've been ignored for a long time. And— it, the, the people with disabilities, it's like one out of four, one out of five yeah, people. The numbers crazy. are huge. I know, babe, and we have nothing. It's like scraps. It's like fucking scraps, honey. We're starving. We need something to eat. And with that, like, there are so many firsts on your show mm-hmm. because just by the nature of, like, the lack of— of representation. Mm-hmm. So lack of representation, but also with these characters being played by actual people with disabilities. Yeah. I think that with your show because it's you wrote it and you star in it, that gives us permission to like laugh at the jokes and not feel like this like might be inspiration porn.
1: Oh my God, never. I mean that's the thing that but that's also why if a disabled story is told, it needs to be told from an actual disabled person. It's not rocket science. Like if you hire someone who's lived the experience to write the show, you will get a better show because they have lived it. Like, 2 plus 2 truly equals 4. So, like... You know what I mean? <laughs> like, you need to give them agency and you need to give them in a position of power and help them create their own shit. Because what I hate is that our story, like, the stories of even gay people can be told, but, like, they're told by, like, a straight writer or a straight a straight male director. And it's all about the gay pain. It's all about our fucking pain. And I'm done. We've already done that. Like, I don't want to see us get beaten by baseball bats anymore and have a straight white, white male director directing that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I just think it needs to be told by the people who are actually living it.
0: Well, it seems like you've always rejected this victim narrative, which can be like really big for people. Like, yes. Um, has that always been your mentality? I've never been
1: conscious of it. I've never been like, I'm not going to be a victim. It just is how my brain's wired. I feel very lucky. I feel very lucky in that way where something happens to me and I kind of am just like, okay, well, that happened. Let's move forward. How do we fix this? How do we do? I'm very like problem-solving. But I'm a Virgo. I'm a Taipei Virgo. So I think that works in my favor.
0: Sure, yeah. And I think that like with the TV show, this is where streaming networks get to shine.
1: Yeah. Right. Absolutely, because there's like they do whatever they want. Netflix is like there's no Netflix brand. They're like literally like, take we'll take everything and think everything's great. Like uh, yeah. well, I've never
0: heard that being said before, actually. Yeah.
1: there's no like like I feel like and you go to Sony networks like, well, you know so and so wants this kind of show because that's the shows they do and so and so wants to do this kind of show. It's like Netflix is truly a buffet of content. and it nothing there's no such thing as a Netflix brand,
0: oh, whereas like we know what an HBO show is, yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. Because not only are you pitching this new show with this new kind of character we've not seen a lot of, it's a new format and short form.
1: Yeah. I never wanted to do that. Oh, really? TVH. Yeah. I mean, like, I—it was short form because—so the way the show got sold was that we went out to um, cable networks in 2015, and no one bought it, and it was really, really hard because people loved the pitch, and basically a, a couple people had told us they were going to make offers on it, and then they got cold feet— but this was a different time in Hollywood. This was, like, even though it was four years ago, like, we've moved the conversation so much further. Like, in 2015, people were like, women are funny? That's nuts. They can carry a movie and be complicated. So gay and disability was, like, "Hello, what's that? So we sold it to this digital branch of Warner Brothers Stage 13, and they were doing digital short-form content. So they commissioned me to write the scripts. And I wrote the scripts as 15 minutes, which was actually very hard for me at first because I come from half hour. That's like what I do. That's what I write. Um, So I had to kind of figure out the most economical way. I mean, looking back at it, I'm actually really, really glad that we did it because I think it made me a stronger writer because it just everything has to be so tight that like you don't have wiggle room to kind of just be like, whatever. You know what I mean? It just like you get right to the point. And I think, you know, in this kind of climate of too much TV, I think there is something to be said about making something that's very bingeable and kind of, you know, brief, but I think for season two, I'd love to d- dive deeper into the characters, um, especially the character of Kim, my best friend, who never really got her own storyline because there was no room, um, and so for season two, I'd like to do that for a half hour, for sure.
0: And you come from a TV writing background. What mm-hmm. rules of TV writing and storytelling still uh, apply when it is short form?
1: Well, basically, you can't have a C story, so the way, like, the way when you break a story, you kind of figure out, like, there's for half hour there's usually an a and a b story and then there's like a runner which is called a c story and for this there was no almost it was almost like the b story was a runner almost you know what i mean like there was no c story whatsoever like xoxo see you out of here so i just had to kind of abbreviate the process like it's there wasn't much there's just no real estate so that's why it became a story basically about me and then my mom
0: and because you were doing this all alone without a Writer's uh-huh. Room, was that more challenging? Yes. Okay. Oh, my God. I was in
1: hell, honey. I was, like, slitting my wrists on Mojo on Beverly, which is now gone. R.I.P. Um, yeah. It was, like, not great. <laughs> like, I'm used to being in writer's rooms. I'm very collaborative. I think there's such power in collaboration and hearing other points of views. So it doesn't get so, like—but I think— you know, it was what it was. I did it entirely myself. I mean, I had really great producers giving me notes, and my director, Anna DeCoza, was incredible too. And she so, like, I definitely had people, like, helping me shape them, but I mean, I
0: was doing all of the writing myself. And previously, you wrote the book version of this, mm-hmm. and for a book, you just kind of write. You go off of loan, and you have no restrictions of, yeah. like, for chapters. It's horrible.
1: <laughs> it's like break it's really bad. Writing a book is not fun. I wouldn't recommend it.
0: Well when you're writing your story then for TV, yeah. you, like I feel like you're less beholden to the truth, right? So
1: it's so true and that's why it's always been more appealing to me than anything else because you can you can be as personal as you want, but you can also take in lots of liberties and to get to the story that you want to tell. It's very freeing. It's very freeing to make something that's so personal but also can go deeper into other stories that you ordinarily wouldn't be able to if it was nonfiction, because you have to stay
0: strictly to the truth. Yeah. What's an example of, like, on the TV show that you got to go deeper in?
1: I think, honestly, the story of my mom. I think that my mom, in real life, has always put other people's needs before her own. You know, if I was to write my mom my book, it, there wouldn't be... I mean, she just... She always really puts everyone before her. And I think in this show, I got to kind of experience some sort of wish fulfillment and kind of be like, well, what would happen if my mom actually got to go after the life that she wanted? What if she actually kind of decided to make decisions for herself rather than for someone else? So it was a really, really amazing creative exercise to explore that, and that's something I couldn't do if I was doing nonfiction.
0: Wow. Yeah. What was her response to seeing that version of her?
1: She loved it. I think it's like hard for her. I mean, she—I wouldn't say hard. I think it's just weird for her. You know what I mean? Because it's like, it is her, but it's not her, because Jessica Hecht, the actress— kind of infused it with her own kind of amazing brand of kooky warmth, and she really did her own thing with it. So actually, the, how Karen acts in the show is not really how Karen, my mom, acts. So there is a separation there, but I think it's just weird for her. I mean, you know, like it's not every day that like your gay son makes a TV show about you. I mean
0: like, you know, I hope for her sake she's in therapy. <laughs> <laughs> it's also not every day that you see your gay son in a sex scene.
1: Yeah, that's weird for her too. <laughs>
0: But, you know, it is what it is. XO. <laughs> yeah. Did you debate changing the character's name from Ryan to, like, add some separation? No. I'm so bad at coming up with names. It's actually a joke. Like, when
1: I first write scripts, like, I just write whoever the is sort of based on. I truly cannot come up with names. I need help. I need, like, a name bank. Because I literally am just like, mm-hmm. like I don't know what's wrong with me, babe. Maybe it's part of my disability. Who knows? That's your
0: big struggle with writing names. I
1: can't come up with names.
0: Yeah. When you were pitching it, were you always going to star in it?
1: No, 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 no. When I first came out, when we first pitched it, I was not attached to star, and I think this was for a couple of reasons. Number one, I had never acted before, so we felt like it was a tough sell, and I think the deeper part of that is that I always liked to perform, um, but... I think I had a lot of shame attached to wanting to act. I don't like I think it was buried so deep. Like I don't think I even admitted to myself that I wanted to act. So basically, like when we sold it to stage 13, there was just kind of no money. So they were just like, Can you do it? And I was like, okay, I think I can. Um and now having done it, I really, really love it. And I feel like I've always loved it and I've always wanted to act. I just I don't know. It's weird. I think as a minority It was, like, almost like, oh, it's already enough that I'm writing and creating and producing it. Like, I don't want to get too greedy or, you know, it feels so presumptuous that I could act or whatever, whatever. I don't know. It's a lot of that stuff. Is it also
0: because looking at TV, you didn't see any roles that you could have, like, played?
1: Totally. I mean, even, like, you know, I got an acting agent after doing special and... I was like, good luck with your projects. Finding me roles. I don't I don't know. Like, what? You I mean, I just don't see anything. So it's like hard for me to put in that headspace of like, if I was to act in different stuff, like, what would it be? I don't
0: know. There's just nothing out there. Was playing a version of yourself that is going through like a more difficult time, was that illuminating for you? It was, I think,
1: emotionally challenging. Because I'm not a seasoned actor and because it was my first time acting, I had a really hard time separating myself from the character. I was really acting out all these things that I had written for myself, and I thought, you know, being 32 years old and in a good place with my, you know, life, and I'm have a, I'm in a loving relationship, I thought, oh, this will be easy breezy because, you know, this stuff happened to me so long ago, and da-da-da-da, but it was really, really hard. I felt like I got, like, emotional whiplash. I felt like when I was in the scenes... It was like I it felt like a reality show in a lot of ways. Like it was just like ooh, and then like I felt like I was like regressing or something. You know what I mean? Like I don't know. I I thought that part was that part of myself was so far behind me and I think acting taught me that it actually still very much is inside me.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: Yeah, fun stuff.
0: <laughs> what was it like <sighs> doing the scene with the sex burger? Oh, it was fantastic. So,
1: I mean, initially I was terrified, but I hired my friend, Brian Jordan Alvarez, who's just a unicorn of a human being. And it's so interesting because, you know, Brian and I know each other, but we're not close friends. Like, but to know Brian is to know that he lives in this kind of judgment-free zone, and he's very emotionally generous and kind. So when we started shooting the scene, I was, of course, very nervous, but Brian was just so present, and he just, like, kind of knew instinctively, like, what I needed from him, and he just, he gave it. He gave it his all, and... Um, I actually, it became a scene that when I started it, I was I was dreading it I was very uncomfortable and then it became so comfortable and in fact kind of cathartic.
0: Wow. Yeah. Thankfully, you had the wherewithal to cast someone you felt so comfortable with.
1: Yeah, I don't think I could have done it. I can't imagine doing this scene anyone with anyone
0: else but Brian. Wow. Yeah. You know, with your own experience with sex workers, why has that been so important for you?
1: Well, it was interesting. I think that... I, Because I was largely celibate in my 20s and I came out of the disabled closet when I was 28 and I had a newfound confidence. It was very like ugly duckling turning into a swan where like I just suddenly felt very comfortable in my own skin. So I started hooking up with people for the first time as someone who liked themselves, which was a whole new thing for me. Because you can have sex when you hate yourself. That's its own brand of terror. But I think when you actually like feel comfortable in your own skin, it's, it's actually incredibly empowering. However, I think that when you do feel good about yourself, you attract everybody. It's true, like, confidence and stuff. So I met my boyfriend, of course, like, two months later. You know what I mean? And so, like, I kind of didn't get to, like, sow my wild oats, you know? Um, And I was very upfront with him when we first started dating, being like, look, you may have sat on every dick in New York in your 20s, but I, like, basically was just, like, in bed with every pharmacist. I was, like, on pills. Um, So... I was like, mom is going to need to, like, live that truth for herself. And he was so incredibly supportive. And I feel like I just started, like, using sex workers because it felt like a safe space to explore. And, um, again, judgment-free and no strings attached because I also, you know, I, I know some people who are open and, you know, they fuck with in their friend group, which is great. But I think to me that always felt a little messy. Um, and I kind of wanted to avoid that. So it was just nice. like It was, I feel like a sex worker, it's a safe space. And it's not connected to your to your actual, like, real social life, so.
0: That safety that you felt with a sex worker, do you feel that now that you're in a long-term relationship, having sex with your boyfriend?
1: Yeah, absolutely. The sex I have with my boyfriend is just sort of incredible because we've been together for four and a half years, and we know each other so well, and it's such a tender, loving thing. Like, it's like, a, it's like writing a love letter to each other every time or something. I mean, that sounds really gay, actually. Like, strike that. But whereas, like, a, using a sex worker feels kind of exciting and new and... I think as as human beings we crave newness. I don't think that we are wired for monogamy. I just don't. And I feel like I feel like when I tell my straight girlfriends like how gay men do sex, they're like deeply triggered because they think that it means that their boyfriend or husband wants to fuck other people, which like he does. And it doesn't mean that they like love them less. It's like a different thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like we can compartmentalize. We're not robots, but like for me, I, I certainly can separate, you know? And it's just it's like getting different needs met it's like scratching different itches you know it's apples and oranges honey
0: and so since every open relationship does look different like do you mind like telling like us like what your rules are with your boyfriend yeah
1: well first of all i think using sex workers kind of alleviates the need for me to look outside of our relationship so like i'm not i mean i can be i've been on the apps but i think i've had like one hookup actually like within our relationship Um, and so I think the door is always ajar, but it's almost like when you travel with the Xanax, like, when I travel with Xanax, it's so in case I have anxiety on the plane, but just knowing that I have the Xanax, I really take it, just knowing it's there is enough, and I think knowing that I always will have the option to explore myself sexually with someone else, it kind of eliminates the need to actually explore myself sexually with someone else. Does that make
0: sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah,
1: but it's also just constantly a dialogue and communication.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate you letting me ask all this. I just yeah. think we don't like talk about it enough. Well, it's fucking weird. I don't get it. Like, that's
1: the thing. Like, when when the conversations I have at dinner parties or at gay bars, like, this is what we talk about. And, like, it's just not being reflected back at me. It's like It's like, why are we, like, let's take this out of the gay bar and into the mainstream. Like, why are we, you know what I mean?
0: I actually don't hear people being as comfortable talking about using sex workers in my day-to-day life. Yeah, I don't get it.
1: (laughs) That's their problem. They have to figure that out. (laughs) Well, I
0: think, like, hearing, like, people like you talk about it, like, sends them on that path.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, gay men have such interesting sex lives. They just do. Like, I have friends that go to, like, Century Day and Night Spa and go get jerked off by strangers all the time. I mean, it's so fun. But it's, like, so secretive in a weird way. Like, it's, like... I don't know what the fuck they're doing. They're doing something. Uh, You know what I mean? But, like, I think it's so interesting, and I love talking about it. I love getting into the nitty-gritty. It's so cool to me. Honestly, it's, like, out of, like, convenience. We're, like, I remember when we were shooting the show in Austin, and my boyfriend was... He was in L.A., and I was shooting my show, so we were spending time apart. And I was, like, looking at apps, and I was, like, you know, feeling horny one afternoon. I was so tired. I've been shooting all week. And I was, like, well, I can either... Have a weird grinder hookup or just deal with whatever the fuck this is or whatever. Or I can literally just like, you know, go on Rentman and, you know, find someone that I find attractive. And, I can text him and he's here, and then we can have a, a great sexual experience, and then he can leave, and that's it. Like sometimes it's like economical, you know what I mean? Like and I you don't, know exactly what's gonna happen. Yeah, yeah, and it's like you don't have to think about it. It doesn't give you you don't have to take. It doesn't take up much emotional space. Where I think with grinder and scruff, like you can fall down some k holes of horniness, and you like you're like oh my god, I've been on the apps for like three hours. Like what am I still doing here?
0: You know. When you're talking to guys on apps, do you feel that you need to like tell them that you have a disability?
1: Um, no. I think, I think the old me, yes. So I think a lot of what kept me from dating when I was younger, besides like garden variety self-loathing, is that I just didn't, like, my disability is pretty mild. I have a limp, but it's mild. Part of me felt like, you know, it was like, do I state the limp and then they're expecting something more? Or do I do I kind of not mention it and then they're surprised? It felt like a very— But now, I don't know, maybe because I just feel comfortable about myself and I'm very out there about who I am, I don't think to mention it. And I got to tell you this thing. No one fucking cares. No one cares. You think they'll care. They don't care. They're just happy to getting their dick sucked. They're just happy to be there, honey.
0: <laughs> that's a big change from the person who used to, like, hide their disability for so long. Right.
1: But that's also privilege of my disability because I think, like, if you're in a wheelchair, then it's a completely different ballgame for you. Like, like my rules for dating while disabled or my experiences while dating while disabled are completely different than that someone with a more severe disability. The fear of judgment is worse than the actual judgment
0: I've received. Do you know what I mean? Yes. And because, like you said earlier, disability looks different on everybody and not everybody's disability is visible. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I think we were talking about earlier about like assumptions people make. Mm-hmm. I think that like people might hear this and like they hear you have a limp and they would be surprised that like I'm sitting across from you and I see that you're like a very fit guy. Yeah. Yeah. I work out. You know, like I like <laughs> and that, I work out. She lifts. She lifts. And like, it, and like that's like ableism, assuming that like your description of yourself like wouldn't be able to like work out. Yeah. Right.
1: Well, by the way, like until I was 27, I didn't know if I could work out. So like my fitness journey was actually really, really incredible and healing for me because. What happened was I moved to L.A., I I got a job in a writer's room, and I immediately gained, like, 10 pounds in four months because I just wasn't moving, and I was eating all kinds of snacks, and I was, like—and it felt felt really bad. I felt like I was in a body that I, like, was just carrying around extra weight. It just didn't feel good. So then I started working out, which was really, really, really triggering for me at first because I just didn't know if I could do it. I felt kind of humiliated. Like, I remember the first time I worked out— I went on the elliptical, and it was, like, resume workout, and I was working out. But I was so slow that, like, they thought I had gone off the fucking elliptical. So it was a journey. But then I stuck with it, and I and I got truly addicted to the endorphins, and um, I lost the weight. And I've been working out ever since, like, with a trainer and stuff like that. And I think that... um Seeing my body and what it can do has been incredibly empowering for me. I used to look at my body as as just deficits everywhere as i've as you know here are fifty ways it's failed me, and now I just keep reaching these new heights and these new goals, and I'm like, I just look at my body as this incredibly powerful thing, and I just feel thankful for all that it's given me and I think reframing that and through exercise has been has been a total game changer for me
0: and I think that your previous feelings about your body Mm -hmm. like also has nothing to do with disability i think everyone's listening to that and like can relate oh i
1: mean i still have gay body dysmorphia like i like i started a writer's room like a month ago and i already feel like i've gained 40 pounds even though i know that's not true i already feel like fat i'm also visible in this way that i've never been where i have to do things like photo shoots for press for special and i've never had my body be on display in that way and it's like weird it's weird you know what I mean? Like it's just like kind of like you just are more aware of things than yeah. you were before.
0: I mean, your body on display, your your face is all over town on billboards. Yeah, I know. That's fucking weird too. It's so weird. Are you That's being weird. are you being recognized out um, and about? Sometimes, yeah, not much.
1: It's weird because I never I never really imagined myself as the face of the show because I wasn't attached to star. So in my mind, I my dream career, my absolute dream career, best case scenario was always being Nora Ephron. You know, like a really famous writer who, like, people knew but, like, wasn't a celebrity because she got Meg Ryan to play the version of herself in all her movies. And so being the Nora and the Meg is weird to me. It just is different. I have to honestly, it's not bad. I'm not saying whatever. It just takes a little rejiggering, you know, just to get
0: used to it. Right. Was this your master plan all along to like get a show on TV with a dis- person, specifically yes. with a gay person? Yes, honey, that was my that was
1: my major driving force, and I'm a tenacious fucking bitch from hell. So like, I love that for you. I oh, I love it for me too. I literally like here's the, again, very grateful for my brain because I won't take credit for it. It's like you know, nature versus nurture. I guess it's nature. Um, when people tell me no, it really invigorates me. When people are like. Oh, like that can never happen because we've got told no ton of times. I and mean, in the business, like I've been writing for six years now, I've been being told no every fucking day. I've been eating troll sandwiches forever. So, but it's great because I don't shut down. I don't. It really gives me life force because I know that they're wrong. Yeah. So I like you know I just I'm like fine. Um, like uh that Harry um, who's the guy in TMZ? Um, Harvey. Harvey Levin. He's disgusting, right? But he has this quote, and it's uh, and this. Writer Nomi Fry's Twitter profile, she goes, never underestimate the power of, I'll show you. <laughs> and I feel like that's been my whole journey.
0: That's I'll show a, you. That's amazing. Yeah. I, I'm really surprised to hear that you are starring in the show because of a money issue. Because on paper, the show is a Netflix show.
1: I know. Well, it was, it was a digital, it was digital first. So that's why there wasn't that much money. But hopefully that will change for next season. It'll be fine. I'll be fine. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'll be fine. My career as a writer, money comes and goes. It's feast or famine. I've had years where my my income was truly tragic. And then I've had years where I'm like, how did I make that much money? That's insane. That's so much money. Also, why don't I own a house? So I feel like you just have to surrender to the ebbs and flows but also, I have insane financial privilege because I got a settlement money for my cerebral palsy. So I always have a cushion, I have a nest egg. It's not much, but it's a nest egg. So like if I ever need money, I can always dip into it.
0: Wait, why settlement for cerebral palsy?
1: Because the doctor who delivered me made me made some mistakes, honey. Oh. I wasn't his best work. So he was sued and then we got a settlement.
0: Oh, I got gotcha. you. Yeah,
1: yeah. So I got it when I was 18. And, I mean, honey, I grew up poor in Ventura. Like, I grew up, like, in a walk-in closet. Like, I'm not joking. I slept in a walk-in closet. So, like, moving to New York and attending Eugene Lang College, like, the new school, and and writing for blogs for $2, are you kidding me? That all came from my settlement money. Like, financial privilege is so
0: real. Like, it like allowed me to take jobs for no money. You know what I mean? Well, I think that that is like the underlying like basis of success for everyone in Hollywood is that they have financial privilege, right? Yeah.
1: Well, if someone gets there, if someone gets there early, like if someone gets success at like twenty six or twenty seven, I'm like, oh, they probably came from money because they were able to just write and do whatever they wanted da, da, da. and that that's not a knock like like if they're talented that's great like with Lena Dunham I feel like people always criticize her for being privileged but I'm like she also was like a workhorse and created good shit she got there faster money allows you to get there faster do you know what I mean? I
0: agree. And I I, I'm not, I don't want to knock it because if I had that, I would use it absolutely. you got to use it. The worst but, thing you could but, do is not use it. But I think that we look at the people in social media who are nailing it, and we just don't know those facts. That, like, yeah, they no. work hard, but also they didn't need to, like, pay their rent. Well, that's why I'm very open and
1: honest about it because I think people saw my career, especially in my 20s, where I was blogging for that Catalog. And, you know, like in living this like, you know, like lovely life in the East Village. And I'm like, no, no, I was doing that because I had my settlement money. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I feel less shame because I didn't grow up rich at all. So I feel like I feel like maybe if I it was like my parents' money, maybe I would feel a little bit of stigma. But because it was my cerebral palsy money,
0: I was like, "Lol, it's my disability money. Like, <laughs> what are you gonna do?" Yeah. <laughs> when when you were blogging for Thought Catalog, mm-hmm. you made a name for yourself in part because you were super honest on yeah. the internet. Do you, now looking back on that like five seven years later, do you have regrets? Um. No, I don't like to live in regret land. I'm sure I said a bunch of stupid shit. Uh,
1: now being older, I, cause I got a lot of hate from, from writing for that kind of, like the internet, like, like the, that my peers, my media peers always would troll me and make fun of me. Really? Oh yeah. I mean, cause I was 24 and I was like making, I was writing viral posts and getting attention and, and I was probably really annoying and my posts were really probably annoying and stupid and naive. So I'm sure, like, I mean, like I don't go back and read those things. Like I just don't. The whole thing is like a blackout fugue to me. But um, I'm sure I was this fucking know-it-all 24-year-old who, like, professed to know the deep truths of the world when I was really just a fucking mess. I mean, like, I don't know. I'm sure a lot of it was annoying.
0: And I guess I asked that because you were airing so much about your life. Yeah, Um, I had no boundaries, which was, like, something you learn when you get older. Sure. Were people afraid to, like, get too close to you because they didn't want to end up in your writing? Sometimes it created
1: some weirdness in some friendships. I mean, yeah, I was pretty ruthless. I didn't have boundaries. Like, I just would write about whatever I wanted to write about. I'm always an honest person, and I will be, as demonstrated by the fact of this podcast, like what I'm telling you. When I see, you know, stigmas around money or sex work, I think it's really important to, like, be honest about it because I think it makes people feel better, you know? And I think I did that kind of honesty with Thought Catalog, you know, removing stigma. But I also think... I, like, aired Dirty Laundry that was just kind of sensationalistic and done for viral hits, which was very hollow and
0: misguided. Did something help you learn boundaries, or was it simply just time? Time. Time, time, time. The best gift that anything could give you is time. We've talked a lot about coming out a disability mm-hmm. and what a big struggle that was. Oh, What a big deal it, it was. Well, it's, it was a huge struggle. So, like, in comparison, though, when you came out as gay, it seems yeah. like that was the exact opposite. <laughs> Easy breezy. I have a
1: very gay family, babe. Very gay family. I mean, my sister, I don't think she would call herself bi, but she's, like, definitely not completely straight. In your no, book, she calls herself bi. She does, and I think she's now removed that label. I mean, she also is polyamorous. My sister's on a fucking journey. You know what I mean? So but she's, your uncle and my grandfather. My uncle's grandfather, yes. My grandfather did die of AIDS, which is a crazy story. It's very sad. Um, he was closeted until he wasn't. Yeah, I've always grown up around that. And also, my uncle, who's gay, uh, his partner had HIV and passed away. So growing up, I was always around it. I went to like his funeral. Like It just was very normalized in my existence, so... I knew growing up that my family would accept me for who I was, which I feel really grateful for because I think having the struggle of being gay and disabled and not accepting either of those things would have been much, much harder for me.
0: Growing up with being gay tied so clearly
1: to AIDS, did that affect you? Um, no. I mean, maybe it
0: should have, but no. I don't know. (laughs) So I—that's I, <laughs> a good question, though. I have no facts to back this up, but like I—I I think that like a lot of our of our generation, like our parents had a tr- issue with us coming out as gay for a number of reasons, and they one of that is die. because it's only AIDS. Yeah, yeah, and that was true. I mean, that that used to be true, but it's not anymore. Yeah, it's
1: changed so much. I mean, I think about like just the generations of my grandfather who passed away in eighty six, four months before I was born, um, and how he was one of the first AIDS patients in in the valley and. You know, had to wear fucking hazmat suits to visit them and all that kind of stuff. And then I think of my generation. I'm thirty. This is thirty two years ago. Thirty two years later, here's me. You know, I'm I'm not on prep, but I can I can be on prep if I want to be. And um, the attitudes around HIV is, you know, it's things have gotten so much better in just thirty years.
0: And so, coming from such a queer family, is that what gave you the? the gumption to throw a party for yourself when
1: you came out? Well, I think I've always just had, like, a flair for, like, dramatics. I think I've always just wanted to live out loud. <laughs> it's a very bold move it as a teenager. Very bold move. I thought it was just funny. I don't know. I mean, yeah, I thought, like, I'm only coming out once. I might as well make it count. But that is, like, truly lol. I was just weird. I was just, like, a weirdo that loved, like, any drama, any kind of whatever.
0: You know what I mean? I just lived for the theatrics. Yeah. Yeah, I loved it. We're almost out of time, but you've written a book about your cerebral palsy, in part. Yeah, yeah, You've written this TV show about it. Are you tired of talking about it?
1: No, because I spent so much not talking about it and lying to myself about it. So actually, I, I think it's actually incredibly healing, and I feel like I've just hit the tip of the iceberg.
0: Th- that's amazing coming from someone who hit it for so long. It feels really good to talk about it. I'm sure at some point I'll be so tired of it, but not now. Yeah. Well, thank you for talking to us today. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. lgbtq is brought to you by Luminary Media, The Advocate, and Hum Media. We are produced by Zach Stafford, Gabriel Horton, Jonathan Hirsch, Elizabeth Mendoza, and myself with sound engineering by Tyler Barton. We'll see you next week.